Good morning. We're going to try something new here this morning. I had occasion several months ago to see part of a video of a chapel message I gave at work recently. And um, given that, like this sermon, I was just reading it, it was really obvious that I was staring down the entire time. And as much as I'd like not to be known as a navel gazer, I thought perhaps we would um, switch things up. Again, I'll still be reading this word for word off my manuscript, but maybe it'll be less obvious this way. Um, now, um, I've received a word regarding this morning's message, two words, in fact, and neither were from the Lord. Uh, the first was from my wife, who's teaching Sunday school and told me to make sure that we don't go too long. Um, so um, we'll endeavor to talk fast this morning, but that tends to come pretty naturally. And then the other was just this morning from Guy Platter, who asked that I not make him look bad. I'm not entirely certain what he meant by that, um, but I think we all know he doesn't really need my help with that anyway. So, um, So um, you may recall that a long, long time ago, back when we all thought Delta was just an airline and we were all blissfully unaware that fully one-third of the American population thinks the 15th letter of the Greek alphabet is pronounced Omicron, um, all the way back then, um, we started a sermon series on the Pentateuch. And that series more or less consists of three parts. In the first part, we talked about how to interpret the Pentateuch. In part two, we did overviews of each of the books of the Pentateuch, and then in part three, we've been looking at various questions and difficult passages that come up in discussions of the Pentateuch. And this morning, we'll be continuing in that third part. Um, our topics for today are polygamy and slavery, because that's what Wendell assigned me. So specifically, we will be considering why God allowed polygamy and slavery in the Old Testament. Before we get into that, though, I think a brief disclaimer is in order. As we consider these passages this morning, it is very important that we understand them against the cultural backdrop of that time. We have a tendency to import our current social and cultural understandings into these sorts of discussions, and that is not particularly helpful. It's very natural to view ourselves as the pinnacle of moral and intellectual development and to look back on everything and everyone before us as backward, unintelligent, barbaric, uncultured, and so on. This is what C.S. Lewis would have called chronological snobbery. Now, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that right and wrong are relative or determined by what one society deems acceptable. However, if we are seeking to understand why God may have allowed or tolerated a particular practice at a particular time, we must consider said practice in the context of that particular time. So as we begin this morning, let us endeavor as much as possible to set aside our assumptions and preconceived notions and instead seek to determine what we can glean from the biblical and historical material. Sound fair? All right, good, because if you said no, we'd have just ended here. Um, but no take backs. Um, finally, before we get started, I want to clarify that our purpose in addressing these topics this morning is apologetic. You don't have to look hard to find new atheist types like Richard Dawkins or the late Christopher Hitchens appealing to what they consider to be the unsavory nature of the God of the Old Testament as a reason to reject Christianity. I'm sure you've all heard it, but I can't resist the opportunity to give you one of my favorite quotes from Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. Dawkins writes, I can't do a British accent or else I would do that here. Um, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, 
a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I've always wondered how much time Dawkins spent with a thesaurus to come up with that. Um, now this is, of course, a fallacious objection. Perhaps instead of ad hominem, we might call it ad divinum or ad divinum. I don't really know where to put the accent when I make up fake Latin words. Um, but uh, the God of the Old Testament either exists or doesn't, and Christianity is either true or false, irrespective of whether Dawkins finds either palatable. If being likable were a prerequisite for existence, I submit there would be a lot fewer people in the world. Um, Dawkins' ability to Google synonyms for big meanie head and string together vast lists of pejorative epithets, while perhaps rhetorically impressive, is as irrelevant to God's existence as my opinion of whether a Genghis Khan was a nice guy is to whether, in fact, he really existed. However, inasmuch as these sorts of objections may serve as stumbling blocks to the faith for some, we need to be prepared to answer them. In some cases, pointing out the fallacious nature of the objection may be sufficient, but in other cases, we will need to be prepared to enter into a cautious discussion of why God may have allowed practices like slavery and polygamy. I say cautious discussion because in the absence of clear revelation, we must always take care not to speak for God. In some cases, God has seen fit to tell us why he did certain things, but in other cases, he has not, and we should not presume to know his mind. In such cases, we cannot responsibly purport to give authoritative answers. However, we can give plausible answers, assuming we are equipped with them. And this is really all that should be required to meet the objection. That is what I will attempt to do today. I cannot and will not attempt to tell you why God allowed slavery or polygamy, but I will offer suggestions as to why he may have allowed the practices that he did allow, practices which, as we will see, differ significantly from our typical understandings of polygamy and slavery. So we'll start this morning with polygamy. First, we should note that to ask the question, why did God allow polygamy in the Old Testament, assumes that polygamy is in fact wrong, or at least falls short of the ideal. After all, we don't ask, why did God allow friendship or barbecues or cheesecake, because we think those things are good or at least morally neutral. As such, no particular reason for allowing those things is needed. So before we can answer the question, why did God allow polygamy, we first need to consider the question, is polygamy wrong? And if we actually look at the biblical evidence, I think the answer is definitely yes. So um, I don't want to spend too much time on this this morning, but we'll consider a few items briefly. First, the account of God's institution of marriage in Genesis tells strongly of an exclusive monogamous relationship. This account serves as a paradigm for what marriage is to be. When questioned about divorce, Jesus appeals to Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The idea that one could simultaneously have this sort of a relationship with multiple other people is just silly. Likewise, the New Testament material seems to assume the ideal of monogamy. Where the relationship between a husband and wife is addressed, the singular is used. The New Testament also presents the relationship between husband and wife as analogous to the relationship between Christ and the church. And this comparison does not make much sense absent a monogamous marriage relationship. In 1 Timothy and Titus, Paul also lists monogamy as a requirement for eldership. We should note that the phrase translated husband of one wife in Timothy and Titus is literally something like one woman man. 
Thus, while this phrase might mean more than monogamy, that is, it also seems to be requiring fidelity, it cannot mean less. So to summarize quickly, it seems quite clear that the Bible presents marriage as a heterosexual, monogamous, exclusive relationship between one man and one woman. With that in place, we can return now to our question of why God allowed polygamy in the Old Testament. At this point, we need to clarify what we mean by allow. As we just briefly discussed, the creation account indicates God's design for marriage as an exclusive, monogamous, heterosexual relationship. Thus, God has already made known to the Israelites what marriage was intended to be, and by virtue of not conforming to that design, polygamy is disallowed, if you will. However, one might ask, why did God not explicitly forbid polygamy? After all, he forbade a lot of other things. Why not polygamy? Well, actually, he may have. According to Paul Copan, an excellent case can be made that Leviticus 18.18 prohibits polygamy. In the NIV, that verse reads, Do not take your wife's sister as a rival wife and have sexual relations relations with her while your wife is still living. However, that translation may not capture what this law is actually prohibiting. This law appears at the tail end of a list of anti-incest laws, and for that reason, it is typically lumped in with them and is not considered in discussions of polygamy in the Old Testament. However, it appears actually to serve as a transition between the anti-incest laws in Leviticus 18 verses 6 through 17, and the more general laws on sexual integrity that follow. Each verse in Leviticus 18, 7 through 17 begins identically, starting with the noun urwa, or something like that, um, which means the nakedness of, and then leads up to the command, you shall not uncover prohibited family members' nakedness. Also, with the exception of verse 9, in each of these verses, a reason for the prohibition is given. For example, she is your mother. In contrast, verses 18 through 23 begin with a different construction. Each begins with what is called the wow conjunctive, which is like our word and, and is followed by a word other than nakedness. There are other differences in the structure of the Hebrew sentences as well that indicate that verse 18 belongs in the category of non-incest prohibitions found in verses 19 through 23, rather than in the prohibition, or rather than the incest prohibitions found in verses 6 through 17. Note also that no reason is given for the prohibition given in verse 18, which we would expect if it were an incest prohibition. How then should we understand what verse 18 is actually prohibiting? First, we should note that in the, law, or in the wording, do not take your wife's sister as a rival wife, the phrase translated wife's sister is literally a woman to her sister. This phrase and its counterpart, a man to his brother, are used 20 times in the Hebrew scriptures, and never do they refer to a literal brother or sister. Rather, they appear to be idioms for one in addition to another. Further, the verb sarar, or to take as a rival wife, is found in noun form in 1 Samuel 1.6 in the story of Elkanah and his wife Hannah and the rival wife Penina. Hannah and Penina were not biological sisters, just two female Israelite citizens. Thus, it appears that what is being prohibited in Leviticus 18.18 is not taking of two, wife, of two sisters as wives, but the taking of another wife in addition to the first, that is, polygamy. This is the interpretation of this command taken by the Qumran community, which was established in the 2nd century BC and was responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, as we've seen, the creation account demonstrates God's design for marriage as an exclusive, monogamous, heterosexual relationship, 
and polygamy is likely forbidden in Leviticus 18.18. Further, where we see the ideal of polygamy ignored, or excuse me, of monogamy ignored, we often see strife, competition, and disharmony, as in the examples of Lamech, Abraham, Esau, Jacob, David, and Solomon. God also warns against polygamy for Israel's king, who would have been the person most likely to have multiple wives. Deuteronomy 17.17 says that the king must not take many wives, or else his heart will be led astray. Now we know that polygamy did, in fact, take place, both in the case of the king and the commoner. However, all this demonstrates is that the Israelites did not always follow the commands of the law. After all, the law also prohibits idolatry, and we see plenty of that in the Old Testament. Having said that, there is one situation in which a potentially polygamous arrangement is permitted or even prescribed by the law, and that would be leveret marriage. Leveret marriage was the practice of a man marrying his brother's widow if the brother died without producing an heir. The practice is outlined in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, which read, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of the town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, This is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandled. Now, there are some really interesting things happening here, including the whole family of the unsandled business. And if you, um, I didn't have a whole lot of time to look into this, but I did very briefly. And if you want a really not um, PG-13 or R-rated sermon, um, look into some guesses as to what that ritual is representing. Um, but we're not going to be touching that today. We're going to confine ourselves to the details relevant to our topic. Note first that nothing in this passage legitimizes polygamy outside of a possible leveret marriage situation. If we are correct that Leviticus 18.18 18 prohibits polygamy generally, nothing in this passage would undo that in the majority of cases. Rather, this passage carves out an exception in response to a very specific situation. Note also that nothing in this passage necessarily requires polygamy. It only requires that when a married man passes away without leaving an heir, the man's brother must marry the deceased man's wife or face public shaming. In some cases, the deceased man probably would have had an unmarried brother, so the practice of leverant marriage in those situations need not have resulted in the brother taking a second wife. However, this passage does not specify or require that the man who is marrying his brother's widow be unmarried. Thus, it stands to reason that at least sometimes the deceased man would not have had any unmarried brothers, and as a result, a man who was already married would be expected to take his brother's widow as an additional wife. So what are we to make of this? Here's my suggestion. Sometimes, in response to situations that are less than ideal, the law makes concessions to prevent those situations from getting worse. Divorce serves as a good example of this. God designed marriage to be permanent, and in a perfect world, there would be no divorce. 
In Matthew 19, when the Pharisees ask Jesus in what situations divorce is permitted, Jesus doesn't even answer their question initially. Instead, he directs them back to the creation story and God's design for marriage and concludes by saying, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The Pharisees then press Jesus, asking why divorce was permitted under the Mosaic law. Jesus responds with the following, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, we don't have time to fully unpack Jesus' response here, and it's really not relevant to our topic. If you're interested in that, I would direct you to the study on divorce and remarriage that the elders undertook a number of years ago. For our purposes this morning, it is sufficient to observe the reason Jesus gives for why divorce was permitted under the Mosaic law, because of the hardness of human hearts. Divorce is not part of God's ideal plan for marriage. As Jesus says, it was not this way from the beginning. However, we do not live in an ideal world, and divorce is permitted in certain circumstances by God in recognition of this. I would argue that polygamy in the case of leveret marriage should be viewed similarly. It's difficult for us today to make any sense of leveret marriage because we live in a vastly different time and culture. But in ancient Israel, to have a married man die without producing an heir would be catastrophic. The perpetuation of the family line and a permanent share in the land were two of the biggest material blessings that God gave to his people. A man who died with no children lost his place among the nations since his name would die out and his share of the land would go to someone else. Further, the man's, the man's widow might have difficulty supporting herself, especially as she got older. Leverett marriage provided a way for the deceased man's family line and land to be maintained and for the man's widow to be provided for. Further, leverett marriage was very different from typical polygamy in its intent. In polygamy, as we typically think of it, a man sought to acquire wives for his own benefit. In leverett marriage, a man married his brother's widow not for his own sake, but for the sake of his deceased brother and his brother's widow. That a man who refused to enter into a leverett marriage had to undergo a ritual designed to publicly shame him suggests that it may not have been something most men were eager to take on. One last item on leverett marriage before we move on. Again, it may strike us that this whole arrangement seems like a really bad deal for the woman involved. After all, she's just lost her husband, and now she's apparently expected to marry her brother-in-law. Again, however, we have to try to escape our cultural blinders when we think about these things. We're not talking about 21st century American culture, where men and women choose on their own whom they want to marry. We're talking about an ancient Near Eastern culture where many marriages would have been arranged. Leverant marriage was also not unique to the Israelites. In Hittite law, and probably other ancient Near Eastern laws, a widow could be married against her will to any male relative, even to her deceased husband's elderly grandfather or infant nephew. In contrast, the Old Testament law only allows her to be married to her deceased husband's brother, who would likely be at least fairly close to her age. Note also that the description of leverant marriage in Deuteronomy does not state that the woman must marry her deceased husband's brother. It only says that she must not marry outside the family. Presumably, if she decided she preferred to remain single, she could do so. So to summarize what we've covered, the creation story demonstrates God's design for marriage as between one man and one woman. The ancient Israelites would have had access to the creation story and thus would, or at least ought, to have been aware of this. 
Additionally, polygamy in general is likely outlawed in Leviticus 18.18. The only situation in which God clearly permits a potentially polygamous marriage is leveret marriage, and this practice existed not for the benefit of the man entering into the leveret marriage, but to preserve the name and land of the deceased man and to ensure his widow was provided for. All right, let's turn our attention now to another cheery topic, and that is slavery. Um, to start, we need to make sure that we're clear what we mean when we use the word slavery. I would guess that for most of us, when we hear the word, we think of chattel slavery akin to the slavery of blacks in America prior to the Civil War. Chattel slavery is an involuntary arrangement where the slave is considered property and the slave owner exercises total rights over the slave's person and work. Now, in the interest of time, I'm going to take it as agreed that this kind of slavery is incompatible with the treatment owed to our fellow humans in light of their inherent dig dignity as beings created in the image of God. However, this is not the type of slavery we see described in the Old Testament. Rather, the slavery we see in the Old Testament is primarily debt servanthood. This would be fairly similar to the indentured servanthood in colonial America. As I'm sure many of you know, back in colonial times, many individuals could not afford the fare for passage from Europe to America. Consequently, they would contract themselves out, often working in apprentice-like situations, until they paid their debts. Debt servanthood in ancient Israel was much like that. In Israel, debt servanthood was entered into voluntarily because of financial desperation and was a temporary arrangement. If there were no poor, there would be no debt servanthood, at least of Israelites. It appears that the Old Testament law actually sought to prevent debt servanthood wherever possible. A good deal of legislation was given to protect and make accommodations for the poor. The poor were given the opportunity to glean the edges of fields or to pick remaining fruit after their fellow Israelites had harvested the land. The Israelites were also to lend freely to their poor brothers and sisters and were not to charge interest. Debts were to be automatically canceled every seven years. Let's look briefly at Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1 through 18, which address uh, some of these topics. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. However, there need be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, he will richly bless you, if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all of his commands. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near, and so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin." Give generously to them, and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. 
Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. But if your servant says to you, I do not want to leave you, because he loves you and your family and is well off with you, then take an awl and push it through his earlobe into the door, and he will become your servant for life. Do the same for your female servant. Do not consider it a hardship to set your servant free because their service to you these six years has been worth twice as much as that of a hired hand. And the Lord your God will bless you and everything you do. Now, before anyone looks at the clock and freaks out, we're not going to exegete this passage verse by verse. We're just going to make a couple high-level observations. First, as we noted, this passage requires the canceling of all debts between Israelites every seven years. This would have gone a long way toward preventing situations where Israelites became so destitute that they had no option but to sell themselves as servants. However, the passage also specifically notes that there need not be any poor Israelites. If the Israelites fully obey the Lord and follow all of his commands, he will bless them richly, so richly that no one would be poor. This is the ideal scenario. While that is the ideal, God clearly recognizes that this ideal will not be achieved. As verse 11 says, there will always be poor among you. The Israelites are commanded to be open-hearted toward the poor and lend them whatever they need. Even if the year for canceling debts is approaching and any amount lended out is unlikely to be repaid before it is forgiven, the Israelites are still to give generously to those in need. Even in spite of these things, though, or perhaps because of imperfect practice of these requirements, Situations may still arise where individuals or families are so desperate that they have no option but to sell themselves as servants. In that case, they are to be set free after six years of service. The only time that this debt-servant situation would continue indefinitely is if the servant wanted to remain in his or her master's household instead of going free. Barring that, the servant is not only to be released but to be supplied with gifts from the master. Now this is already sounding not at all like what usually comes to mind when we think of slavery. However, there are additional features of Israelite debt servanthood that distinguish it from chattel slavery. The Old Testament law allows a person who had sold him or herself as a debt servant to be redeemed prior to the usual seventh year release by a family member who is able and willing to pay the servant's debts. Leviticus 25.43 prohibits ruthless treatment of Hebrew debt servants. Exodus 21 verses 26 and 27 require that a servant be set free if the master injured the servant by gouging out an eye or knocking out a tooth. Exodus 21:16 and Deuteronomy 24:7 prescribe the death penalty for kidnapping of another person, whether the kidnapper's intentions or intention was to sell the person or to keep them, presumably as a slave. Deuteronomy 23 verses 15 and 16 require Israel to offer safe harbor to runaway slaves. These practices not only distinguish Israelite debt servanthood from typical chattel slavery, they also differ significantly from the practices of other ancient Near Eastern nations. For example, Hammurabi's code allowed masters to cut off the ears of disobedient slaves. It also demanded the death penalty for anyone who helped a runaway slave. Other law codes, such as the Lipit Ishtar, Ashuna, Hittite, 
and Babylonian laws only imposed a fine for helping a runaway slave, but these codes still required that the slave be returned to his or her master. The Babylonian law code also allowed masters to disfigure recovered runaway slaves by branding them and having their ears slit. Now, what we've discussed so far is what the law says about when an Israelite sells him or herself as a servant to a fellow Israelite. To be fair, though, the law was different regarding foreign slaves. Unlike Israelite debt servants, foreign slaves did not have to be released after six years of service. Leviticus 25 verse 46 says that foreign slaves could be kept as slaves for life and bequeathed to one's children. However, there may be a bit more going on with the word foreigner here than meets the eye. According to Paul Copan, in the Old Testament, this underlying Hebrew word is associated with someone who is dangerous or hostile to what is good and to God's purposes for Israel. Foreigners are frequently associated with idolatry, hostility, or the enemy. Recall that Solomon married foreign wives that led him into idolatry. So, we are not necessarily dealing here with just any non-Israelite. Rather, this passage may be specifically addressing those non-Israelites who had no desire or intention of integrating into Israelite society. Some of these foreigners may have been prisoners of war that did not care for Israel's laws and as such could pose a threat to Israel's safety. Given their recalcitrance, options for such people would have been very limited. However, other foreign slaves may have been people who freely came to Israel because even the prospect of indefinite servanthood in an Israelite household was preferable to the opportunities available to them in their native countries. Note also that while the law did not require regular release of foreign slaves, other protections for slaves or servants would still have applied, including release for certain injuries. Further, we know that in some cases, foreign servants could become elevated even to the point of equality with Israelite citizens. For example, a descendant of Caleb named Sheshan gave his daughter in marriage to his Egyptian servant. So, to summarize, the slavery permitted in the Old Testament is quite different from what we probably think of when we hear the word slavery. Rather than chattel slavery, we might more accurately describe it in most cases as debt servanthood. God's ideal was that there would be no poor among Israel, in which case there would also be no debt servanthood. The law makes accommodations for the poor that would have helped them to avoid situations where they would need to sell themselves as servants. If an Israelite was left with no option but to offer him or herself as a debt servant, the law required that he or she not be treated harshly and be released after six years of service with gifts from the master. Israel was also or Israel was allowed to have foreign slaves that were not required to be released in the seventh year. However, these foreign slaves may have been individuals hostile to Israel, and we also have reason to believe that foreign servants who were willing to integrate into Israel could rise to the level of equality with Israelite citizens. Now, all of this still likely seems very foreign to our modern sensibilities. However, I think the following quote from Old Testament scholar Walter Eichrott sums up the matter well, and we'll conclude with this. The norms given in the Book of the Covenant reveal, when compared with related law books of the ancient Near East, radical alterations in legal practice, in the evaluation of offenses against property, in the treatment of slaves, in the fixing of punishment for indirect offenses, and in the rejection of punishment by mutilation, the value of human life is recognized as incomparably greater than all material values. The dominant feature throughout is respect 
for the rights of everything that has a human face. And this means that views which predominate universally elsewhere have been abandoned and new principles introduced into legal practice. Ultimately, this is possible only because of the profundity of insight hitherto undreamt of into the nobility of man, which is now recognized as a binding consideration for moral conduct. Hence, in Israel, even the rights of the lowliest foreigner are placed under the protection of God. And if he is also a dependent without legal rights, to oppress him is, like oppressing the widow and orphan, a transgression worthy of punishment, which calls forth God's avenging retribution. Stand. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.